Hey besties, it's Tina, Karen, and Jules here. Tools down, time to chat work, life, well-being, and relationships. You're listening to Let's, Let's Take, Take It, it Offline. Hi everyone, this is Tina. Welcome back to the Let's Take It Offline podcast. Today we have a very exciting topic. Well, I'm personally very excited about it and I know Karen and Jules are as well. It's been something that we talk about with each other forever. And today we're actually joined by a guest who is a practitioning dietitian. So we will talk everything gut health today. And as we know, gut health is so important in terms of your holistic health. So we're so keen to dive into this topic. But before we do, and before we introduce our guest this week, just make sure that you subscribe, rate, and also share our podcast. We would love to hear what you're enjoying about the podcast and what else you want to hear. So leave us a comment on Instagram as well. And with that, I will go straight into introducing Annalise Collier, our guest this week. Annalise is a friend and also a dietitian in the Eastern suburbs. She also provides telehealth consults as well. So super exciting to have you on the podcast, Annalise. And congrats are in order because you just released your ebook yesterday. Thank you. I did. Yes. Went live yesterday evening. So it's been, yeah, first time launching the ebook. So it was um, a little bit stressful getting there, but so far I've had quite a few people start to purchase it, which has been lovely. That's amazing. Yeah. And I saw all of the reposts that you did of people commenting and giving feedback already on Instagram. So that's great. So before we dive into the content, we'd love to hear about yourself and your experience as a dietitian. So yeah, over to you. Awesome. Yeah. So I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. So I studied back in 2010, I think I started studying at Wollongong University. And after graduating, I started working at Prince of Wales Hospital, which is just in Randwick in the eastern suburbs. And I was really fortunate to get lots of experience there across lots of different clinical areas from ICU to gastrosurgical to cardiology and aged care. And then I actually spent some time working as a senior dietitian at a mental health hospital in Sydney, which was a really rewarding and awesome experience as well. And then from there, I came back to Prince of Wales and started my own business. So I've always had a passion for nutrition and helping people. And I always kind of saw myself having a private practice. And I thought, if not now, then when? So I took the leap, even though I really loved working in the hospital. And so my business is actually called Your Gut Feeling. So it's a dietetics private practice just based in Bronte here in Sydney. And I also work part-time at Bondi Doctors and Double Bay Doctors as their consulting dietitian. So a fair bit of variety in the mix. I actually still also work at Prince of Wales in cancer survivorship and palliative care, which is super rewarding as well. Yeah, amazing. And I can tell that you're just super, super busy and very thankful to have you on the podcast today. And I think I've only met you a few months ago, but you know, I just thought you leave such a great impression because you've got that really calm, collected and really nurturing presence about you. And then just the context that I met you as well at One Wave. So for those of you who don't know what One Wave is, it's actually a Bondi sort of local group, would you say, that meet every Friday. Everyone just kind of meet up about mental health and then go for a surf together. And I think that's such a nice little Friday ritual. And I've heard good comments about your practice and everything. So great honor to have you on the podcast today. 
I was just going to say that morning that we did meet, I had just done an ice bath and I was freezing cold and you were so generous and you gave me your jumper. And so I'm still really grateful for that. (laughs) Not a problem at all. My pleasure. All right. Well, every guest we have on the podcast, we just try to get to know them a bit better by doing a fast five round of questions. So the first question, and maybe a little bit controversial asking a dietitian this, but would you rather a margarita or a gin and tonic? Margarita. That's my girl. That's my girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You might say no alcohol at all. No, I love it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Second question, would you rather sleep in or exercise? Sleep in. Yeah. I'm not an exercise person. Everyone thinks it. Yeah. And I, yeah, I love running in the afternoon. I hate exercising in the morning. Just not my jam. I can sleep until like 9.30. Yeah. Wow. Love yeah. sleep. All right. Podcastable. Oh, that's a hard one. I genuinely love both. I love like podcasts for learning. So I would so much rather learn and listen to people's experiences, like autobiographies, like things like that, just through a podcast. But if I was looking to kind of just lose myself in a book, I would, yeah, probably go for a book just to relax because I love fantasy books. Yeah. Okay. What are you reading at the moment? Nothing. I'm searching for a new book. I love like Sarah J. Mass, who does some great books. If anyone likes fantasy, like Crescent City is awesome. All right. Well, for our listeners out there, leave us a comment as to what Annalise should read next. <laughs> All right. What's the one thing you can't live without? That is so hard. I'm going to say like ballistics. Like I live like always and I drink so much water, but I put some on before this podcast and so we're good to go. But yeah, I reckon it's just <laughs> <laughs> you need to touch up in between. That's fine. Okay. Last question. What was the last thing that you Google searched? Oh my goodness. I can probably really check quickly. It's probably something super nerdy. It's like the clinical guidelines for the use of lifestyle for mental health care and major oh, depressive wow. disorders. So, yeah. That's how you know you've got the real deal. Good on that you. That is the last thing. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. Thank I hope that was fun for you. I, we always enjoy getting to know our guests a bit better. But now let's maybe delve into more of the meaty part of the podcast. So you mentioned that you, you know, had a university degree in dietics and all that. I'm curious as to why you went down that path and what sort of triggered your interest in this area. Yeah, great question. I guess bringing it back. So when I was younger, I did compete at a pretty high level in athletics. And so I was always kind of like really interested in the human body and sport and nutrition. And for a period there, I kind of thought I was going to be a, well, I wanted to do a physio, but then My pop actually got really sick. So he had like end stage kidney disease. And I remember going to the nursing home and seeing him there and he was losing a lot of weight. And he was actually seen by the dietitian who gave him some nutrition supplements and helped just to kind of support his nutrition and look after his kind of the renal side of things as well in terms of his diet. And that really inspired me. I think that was super motivating. I was kind of tossing out between like being like a naturopath and a dietitian, but I really loved that the dietetics was a bit more evidence-based and kind of science. I loved biology at school as well. So it seemed like kind of like the perfect choice. Yeah. Yeah. So Annalise, I, I wanted to ask, there's the terms between like a dietitian or a naturopath, and then there's also a nutritionist as well. What are the key differences between all of them and how do we decide who to actually go seek professional help from 
if we wanted to see someone to do with our gut health? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I know that there's a lot of confusion in that space as well. I guess I'll define like what a dietitian is just to begin with, start with the easiest one for me. So like dietitians, we're university qualified professionals. So we've done four to five years of study, either have an honours or master's degree, and we can work in clinical settings. So places like hospitals or GP practices, but also in the community in private or for food companies or sports teams. And I guess it's important to know that dietitians have a governing body. So we have a code of conduct that we need to abide by. And so just in terms of like that scope of using evidence-based practice, you know that you will definitely get that from a dietitian. And dietitians definitely take a really holistic approach. So we go into diet, lifestyle, anything from biochemistry to social history and make sure that we are providing really personalized recommendations. And it's important to know that dietitians like a protected term. So um, you can only call yourself a dietitian in Australia if you've done the degree. And then with regards to like other kind of areas of practice. So with nutritionists, I know some amazing nutritionists, they do work quite similarly to dietitians. However, they can't work in a hospital or a GP practice. And in Australia, the term's not regulated. So there are clinical nutritionists who have done a Bachelor of Nutrition Science, but there's also kind of like Sally from the gym that might have done a two-day weekend course and she can call herself a nutritionist. And so just kind of keeping that in mind. And then with naturopaths, so they're a little bit more, they're great health professionals, but they have more of a complementary or alternative approach. So they use like focus on nutrition, but also like herbal medicine and acupuncture. And I think yeah. you can do a degree in naturopathy, but I don't know if that's like the standard, if there are other ways to become a naturopath as well. So I guess before you see any health professional, just check their credentials and just make sure that they're qualified. That'd be my main advice. Yeah. Mm, great advice. And I'm super interested in like diets and nutrition for the reason that I keep hearing people say that your gut is your second brain. And so I, I just want to delve into your view as to gut health in the context of your holistic health. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I'll unpack the first part about the gut as your second brain. And so I'm not sure if you guys know, but your gut contains like a really complex network of millions of neurons and neurotransmitters. And so these communicate with your brain and other organs in your body. And this network is called the enteric nervous system. And it actually functions like independently from your central nervous system. So that's kind of why it's called the second brain. And our enteric nervous system is responsible for controlling like our digestion. So motility and secretion and absorption of nutrients and that communication between our brain and our gut actually happens through the vagus nerve. So the awesome thing is that that communication is actually bidirectional. And so yes, your brain can talk to your gut, but also your gut can talk to your brain. And so the perfect example that I always like to use is if you have like a presentation or you're going on a first date or you've got something where you're really feeling a bit stressed and anxious about it, that might show up where you feel like butterflies in your tummy or you feel like you need to like rush to the bathroom or you feel nauseous. And so that's your brain saying to your gut, hey, I'm stressed and we're not focusing on digestion right now. So we're in like that fight or flight kind of state where your blood flow will be redirected away from the gut and to the extremities, so to your hands and to your feet. 
so you can like potentially get out of there if you need to. And I guess another way that our brain and our gut are communicating and why this relationship is so important is because a lot of our neurotransmitters, so things like serotonin, which is our feel-good hormone, or GABA, which is like a calming hormone, they can be synthesized in our gut, so made in our gut, and they can actually travel and cross the blood-brain barrier. So when we have a really healthy gut, that's going to be supportive of our mental health as well and all multiple like other areas of our body. It's not just limited to our, our mood. So yeah, I can definitely keep talking about this topic for a while, but I'm not sure if you've got other questions. Yeah, it's fascinating. Maybe just a follow on on that. When you see your clients, what would be the signs that you look for to kind of at a high level tell whether they've got like a good gut health or if they have signs of things or symptoms that they need to worry about? Yeah, it's a really good question. Before I answer it, I'm going to explain what good gut health is because mm-hmm. I think that's something that we hear the term so often, oh, have a healthy gut, gut health, this and that. But in terms of what it actually looks like, the scientific community kind of agrees that A healthy gut is one that has a lot of diversity in the microbes living inside. So I should bring it back. Inside your large intestine, you've got trillions of microbes living in there. And a lot of them play like really positive roles in in your overall health and well-being. And so a healthy gut is one that has a really diverse range of different microbial species, so a really robust environment. So the example I like to use is If you think about the Amazon rainforest where there's so many different species living there, it's a really diverse ecosystem. If a fungus came along and it wiped out like 20% of the plants, it's still a really robust ecosystem. Whereas if you took that same fungus to a palm plantation and the fungus wiped out the palm trees, then the whole ecosystem has been eradicated. So it's not very resilient. And so when we think about gut health, we want to have a gut that has lots of different bacterial species in there. And I can talk about how we can do that in a moment. But the other thing we want to make sure is there's like an evenness. So there isn't one species of bacteria dominating. So we want to have an even range of lots of different bacteria. And we also want to have bacteria that can generate butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. And that has like other kind of like benefits around our body as well. So I guess to answer your question, it is really hard to definitively say that somebody has an unhealthy gut because unless we do like a microbiome test where we can look at the different species within the gut, I would say that signs that somebody's gut maybe is not healthy is that they have a lot of inflammation. So whether that be like, you know, skin inflammation or potentially they have like metabolic conditions where they're quite inflamed or depression that's another kind of inflammatory condition or anxiety or they have those kind of like gut symptoms or a lot of bloating or poor digestion or reflux or diarrhea constipation so those kinds of symptoms wow yeah that's really interesting because like i think this might be too much information sharing with our listeners but during covid that period like for me specifically because we were eating out less, I think my diet was exposed to less 
products specifically dairy. Mm. And I found that the moment I then had some dairy products that I would have gut health problems or discovering that there were potentially like FODMAP-related foods that I couldn't eat. And for our listeners out there, would you be able to go through probably some of the common problems that are related to gut health as well that they might not actually know about, but there's different categorizations of each one? Just to take it back to what you said around like noticing that you had those gut symptoms when you had dairy because you were having it less in covid it could have been the fact that you have a mild lactose intolerance. And so the lactose is the sugar in dairy. And if we don't have the enzyme lactase in our gut, we malabsorb it. And that's when we get those symptoms like bloating and yeah. diarrhea and gas. And with lactase, our body stops producing it. We don't produce as much if we're not having dairy as often. So you might have just not been producing as much lactase. And that's why you kind of had those symptoms come up. What are the most common types of problems that people experience with gut health? I would say that the most kind of common gastrointestinal issue that I see in clinic is like IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome, that actually affects one in seven people worldwide. So it is really common. And IBS is a functional gut disorder. So it's essentially a diagnosis that's given when other kind of inflammatory reasons for the symptoms have been eliminated. So there's no Crohn's or IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease like colitis or Crohn's. There's no celiac disease. There's no infection or inflammation within the bowel, but a person still has these gut symptoms. And yeah, I would say that IBS is probably the most kind of common gut symptom that I see in practice. Mm. And that can show up in lots of different ways. So that can show up as bloating, cramping, diarrhea, constipation, diarrhea and constipation, <laughs> nausea, anxiety. Like, yeah, it's really specific to each individual, the symptoms for IBS. And Elise, everything you've just spoken about really resonates with me purely because the last maybe six mm. months, I've had to go and see a naturopath do all of the microbiome testing. I had a whole host of things. I won't give you all the detail purely because it might gross everyone out. But anyway, um, <laughs> I had to do this microbiome test. And by the way, it's not fun to do if anyone's ever done one. And what kind of came out of it was that I had an imbalance in my microbiome and the bacteria that needed to, I guess, protect my gut, for lack of a better way of explaining it. And my naturopath gave me a whole host of different foods to eat, try and incorporate cacao powder, grape skins and apple skins and bamboo. Leek was very important and it was all around prebiotics and he gave me a list of the actual food types that I could incorporate into my diet. I mean, what's your take on that balance of diet like how consistent do you really need to be? Because I find it really easy to fall off the bandwagon there. Yeah, I think first of all, it sounds like you're seeing a great naturopath and those prebiotic fibers, did they explain to you what they are, like what the role of those yeah, is? Yeah, there was like a, like a chart that identified which, where they belong, but probably not in detail. So prebiotics are the food for the bacteria, so the food for probiotics. So prebiotics are typically like fibers. And so by 
giving your gut microbiome or by you eating those specific probiotic-rich foods, you're feeding the good bacteria that you want more of within your gut. So that's kind of the idea that that naturopath has mm-hmm. kind of come up with for you. I think in terms of the imbalance of your microbiome, I guess the question is I try to remain eating those good foods for maybe a month and then it was pretty easy to go out and eat Uber Eats and we all go out for dinners and all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty hard. But I mean, what's your sort of take on that is to come back to it or? Yeah, definitely come back to it. I think with any kind of behavior change, it's hard. Like behavior change is hard and it's so often not about that kind of all or nothing approach. Like with all of my clients, I will never say you can't have this or you can't have that. Every single food is always freely available. It's more about how can we make those slow kind of gradual changes towards kind of crowding out the less desirable foods and increasing the intake of good foods. And so I think if a lot of us kind of start out when we see a health professional and we're like, I'm really motivated, I want to make all these changes And we go like full throttle and just kind of do a blitz and go from like zero to a (laughs) hundred, which is awesome. Like you're motivated, you want to make those changes. But unfortunately, what can happen is that it ends up feeling too hard because it's too much too soon. And so what I would suggest is like, how can we break this down so that it's sustainable for you? What are some things you can identify that you can get started with like tomorrow or today that you know that you could continue doing that. And so a really fun one that I like to encourage my clients to do is like aiming for those 30 different plant foods. And so that way where we're not saying you have to eat these specific foods, you can eat any kinds of plant foods you want, but just making sure there's the diverse there. So the more diverse your diet, the more diverse your gut microbiome is going to be. So, And remember we said how much we want that really diverse range of bacterial species. And so I would say even if it's something as simple as like trying a new fruit or vegetable or a new grain, like how can we make it exciting and fun and not feel like a chore? That's, yeah, the approach I would recommend. Thank you because I tell you, it's hard to diversify leaks, that's for sure. Julie, it sounds like you might have to go and download Annalise's ebook. <laughs> yeah. I did mind I can maybe go back to the common problems that you see with clients with gut health issues. So IBS, mm. is that mostly to do with imbalances in the gut or is there more like a psychological factor to that as well? I'll add to that as well, whether it's hormonal too. Mm. Yeah. Hormones also affect whether you have IBS or not. Yeah. So both great questions. Like we spoke about before, so IBS is what we call that functional gut disorder. So essentially, yeah, it differs from other gastrointestinal conditions because there's no like disease or inflammation within the gut, but there is that disturbance of bowel function. And so interestingly, the actual cause kind of remains unknown, but there are factors that are thought to play a role. So some of those factors are things like gut sensitivity. So people with IBS may have an extra sensitive gut or what we call a misfiring or a miscommunication between their brain and their guts. But essentially, yeah, there are a number of different factors that can play a role. So like I mentioned, the gut sensitivities of people with IBS might have an extra sensitive gut or have that misfiring or miscommunication between their brain and their gut via their vagus nerve. Or they may have had a previous infection. So for some people, they've gone overseas, 
got barley belly, they've come back to Australia, they don't have barley belly anymore, but they still have these symptoms and they're ongoing. Tina's laughing, so maybe you had barley belly mm-hmm. recently, but that can be like a precursor for IBS. But that's not saying that you're going to get IBS, but for some people that could be a trigger. So definitely not saying you have IBS or anything like that. And then other things are like a dysbiosis within the gut microbiome, so an imbalance of bacteria in the microbiome. So we've kind of touched upon that already. But I guess the main point as well is that IBS should never be self-diagnosed. So if you ever suspect that you have IBS, please see a GP or a gastroenterologist because you really want to rule out any other serious gut conditions. So you want to make sure that there's no... IBD or celiac or bowel cancer or endometriosis. And I think just noting like some red flags. So if you're somebody that notices that you've lost a bit of weight recently without trying to, or there's blood in your stool, or you're waking up with night sweats, they're all pretty like big nutrition red flags. And so I would recommend going and seeing. You're really feeding the hypochondriac in me here. That's really interesting because I think like back to my comment around during COVID and how I noticed things as well with my gut health, I did go down a path of self-diagnosis to try to figure out what was wrong. And a term that I kept coming across was a FODMAP as well. (laughs) And I wanted to ask you more about what that is because it seemed like it was a very topical thing at the time where it was a buzzword that was going around to drive a lot of behaviors and what people should be eating or not within their diets yeah. too. And I remember a period of time when we went to Karen's for dinner and there was no, was it broccoli? No broccoli, no. Yeah, no raw green beans, no gone. Yeah, great question again. So for MAPS, if you guys don't already know, it's actually an acronym. So it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And these are short-chain carbohydrates or sugar alcohols. And they're found in lots of different foods, so not just broccoli, but also other vegetables and fruit and grains and dairy. And the way that they can impact people with IBS is that for a lot of us, they can be poorly digested in the small intestine. So that's actually where you absorb all your nutrition. So you've got your stomach, which attaches to your small intestine and then your large intestine. So when we were talking before about your gut microbiome, that's in your large intestine. Whereas if we kind of go back up, we have our small intestine and that's where we absorb all of our nutrition. So it's broken down into amino acids, sugar and lipids, so fat, and we absorb it into our bloodstream. So in the case of FODMAPs, these sugars are not properly digested. And so They then travel down to your large intestine where they then are rapidly fermented by the bacteria living in your gut. So they are like, woohoo, there's a feast. So they produce extra gas. And then because it's a large molecule, it can also draw fluid into the gut as well. So that's when people feel like really bloated or have that distension, like, or even the diarrhea as well. So for people who have IBS, like we spoke about, they have an extra sensitive gut. And so typically like those maldigested sugars wouldn't cause symptoms, but if your gut is hypersensitive, that's when they can. So FODMAPs is essentially like a bit of a protocol. So it's called a dive and it's more of a protocol where the person who is following it will eliminate all FODMAP containing foods. 
So I see a lot of people who come into clinic and they're like, I'm on a low FODMAP diet. And they've got the Monash app, which is great. It's like definitely the best app to use, but they haven't seen a health professional. And so they're not really sure what they're doing. And they're kind of eating some FODMAPs and not others. And they're avoiding garlic, but eating onion. But the strict way to kind of do FODMAPs is, or the correct way is, A, do it through a health professional, either a dietitian or a GP really go through that elimination process so that you don't have any gut symptoms. If you still have gut symptoms, then it's probably not IBS or format related. And then the second phase is reintroducing. So you kind of have these trial periods where you reintroduce certain sugars. So like either the sugar alcohols or what else? And what did I say before? The different kinds of disaccharides. And then you see where your threshold is. And then after that, there's like the maintenance period. So really important to note that the FODMAP diet is not recommended to be on for the long term because it is really restrictive and it can kind of lead to nutrition deficiencies or also for some people like disordered eating patterns as well. So yeah, that's a bit about the FODMAP diet. Yeah, no, that was such a great explanation. Like so concise, I think, because there's lots of definitions online as to what it is. But it kind of just brings back to the point you made around having that variety of the diet. Like even if you eliminate for FODMAP reasons or whatever, introducing it so that your body has that level of familiarity or that level of, I guess, balance with the microbiomes is actually quite important to having a very balanced gut health at the end of the day, which is why I have started eating cheese again. And it's been amazing. (laughs) So we talked about a few common issues that people experience. So IBS, we talked about intolerances and FODMAP. Touch on sort of like hormonal imbalances as well. But, you know, when someone suspects that they might have an issue with the gut health, so for example, if I had belly recently and then suddenly I noticed some changes (laughs) in my gut health, (laughs) well, touch one, it doesn't actually happen. But if it does, what would you recommend to be like the steps I should take? Should I go and see, you know, yourself like a dietitian, nutritionist, or should I go see GP first to get some tests done? What would you recommend people do first? Yeah, I think like just using the example that you've come up with regarding if you recently have Bali Belly, I guess, first of all, just how long has it been happening for? Did you just get back or has it been something that's kind of ongoing? If it is, then definitely go to your GP. So I would recommend kind of making sure you get something called like an MCS. So it's like a store sample test just to make sure there's no ongoing infection. But for the general person who just has these kind of gut symptoms, then again, going to your GP. So if you came and saw a dietitian or a naturopath or a nutritionist, I would hope that every single one of us would say the same thing where we would want to eliminate any other kind of causes for the gut symptoms. And so, like I mentioned at the start, IBS, it's important that's diagnosed by a a trained health professional, so through a GP or a gastroenterologist, because otherwise you end up in this place where you don't really know what it is, where it could be, do I have celiac or do I have an infection or is it that I have this dysbiosis or imbalance in my gut? And you can end up on a bit of a spiral. And I see that a lot of people who come in and they're, pretty worn out because they've had these symptoms that they've had for a really long time and they're exhausting. Like it's really hard if you're suffering from gut symptoms frequently. And a lot of people, it's like impacting on their quality of life, like significantly. So I think that the best practice would be to see a doctor and then 
eliminate any kind of more serious cause. And then um, if it is something like IBS or an imbalance, then you can definitely see a dietitian or other health professional. Yeah. And then, so when someone comes to see you, what will be the steps that you, is there like a protocol in terms of what would be the tools in your kit back, I guess, to address the issues? Yeah, again, it's a hard one for me to answer just because it's so individualized. And so if somebody came to me and they hadn't had any blood tests, they hadn't seen a doctor, they were really at the start of investigating what's kind of going on, I would say, I can give you some tips today. I always give people recommendations, but I would refer back to the doctor just so that we don't kind of, I've just seen worst case scenarios in the hospital where people haven't seen a health professional and have kind of gone to alternative therapy. And and this is definitely like worst case scenario here, but it is something more serious. And so it's always just good to kind of cross your T's, dot your I's. But if somebody came in to see me and they have a diagnosis of IBS, again, it's going to be so individualized. So for some people, maybe the low FODMAP diet would be the best approach, but that isn't for everybody because it is really restrictive. It is, you know, over the long term, it can affect like nutrition quality of life. And if somebody's had a history of kind of disordered eating, then it isn't really something that I would recommend for them. So typically it's kind of, yeah, around identifying what the symptoms are, And we go through something called the nutrition care process. So I'd look at what we call nutrition impact symptoms. So what are their bowels doing? Are they having reflux? Do they have nausea? What's happening in terms of like their sleep? Are they exercising? Like all of those other factors that all contribute to physical health, gut health, mental health. So making sure that my recommendations just really personalize to to meet their needs. We love that, Annalise. Thank you. And you've given us loads of practical tips already, the right people to go and see and variety within your diet. But anything we've missed in terms of top tips that you would recommend? If we think about diet, there's so many fad diets out there, fasting, a whole host of different things that people do. What is one of your tips around that? Yeah, I think definitely kind of reiterating what we've spoken about. So, getting that diversity in, aiming to have mainly whole foods. And so your fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grain, breads and cereals, legumes, nuts and seeds. So those foods that haven't been processed, like ultra processed kind of foods you want to limit because they can be pro-inflammatory. And that's what I'm talking about. Things like your deep fried foods, like sugary drinks, lollies, chocolate. And in saying that, I am not an advocate to say you should never have those foods, just kind of like keeping them in moderation. But other kind of ways you can start to improve your gut health could be incorporating some fermented foods into your diet. So things like kimchi or sauerkraut or tempeh or yogurt, like just a natural yogurt, those fermented foods naturally contain probiotics. So those beneficial bacteria. So it's kind of like you're just giving yourself a little dose of good bacteria and they might survive, they might kind of populate in your gut, but that's a really simple way to kind of boost your gut health. And then the basics, like the foundations, just getting good sleep, exercising, and you know that exercise is also beneficial for our gut microbes and our gut microbes also have their own circadian rhythm. And then the other thing would be just trying to manage stress. So we know that stress can have a negative impact on our whole body and particularly our gut health as well. So it can actually increase 
intestinal permeability or like leaky gut. So they're my kind of takeaways, holistic diet, Mm. sleep, exercise. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is if I'm eating Korean fried chicken, as long as I have kimchi with it, I should be okay. Exactly. It's all about the balance and moderation. Yeah. And getting enough sleep after Jules. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question about a much-loved drink, which is coffee. And people tend to have coffee on an empty stomach, which actually then I think a lot of people have then the symptom of needing to go to the bathroom soon after. And I wanted to ask Annalise what your take on coffee is on diet and especially whether having that on an empty stomach is a good thing to be doing. Yeah. So great question. I guess to kind of break it down, coffee itself does contain like polyphenols, which are plant-based compounds that aren't good for your gut health. So there's that positive. Coffee obviously contains caffeine. So for some of us, that's a really nice like energy boost. On an empty stomach, again, it's like relatively safe in terms of what's happening inside your stomach. But The only thing that I would mention is that if you're somebody that is prone to having or experiencing anxiety and you're doing something like fasting in the morning and having a long black, there is the potential that coffee can increase like your cortisol levels. And the kind of mechanism there is that while you're fasting, you use your stored glucose, so your glycogen, and that's sort of in our liver and a little bit in our muscles. And we use that overnight to kind of fuel our body. So we still need that energy. And in the morning, typically we'd have some food, we break the fast and our blood sugar levels come back up. But if we skip breakfast, then our body wants to work really hard to stop our blood sugar levels from dropping low because low blood sugar levels or hypoglycemia is dangerous. It can be life-threatening. And so our body is responsible to release stress hormones. So we will release cortisol and adrenaline to keep our blood sugar levels nice and stable and so if you then kind of pop coffee on top of that it's another one that can kind of increase that stress hormone of cortisol and so for a lot of people that I see they've kind of in this cycle where they're feeling quite stressed and anxious and a lot of the time it's just about kind of eating with the coffee like just having breakfast having your coffee food so yeah, it's, that's kind of my message there. It's not so much that having coffee in an empty stomach is necessarily bad. It's more that what the kind of like overall interactions that are happening, the overall kind of effect on your body. So yeah. And again, everyone's tolerance to caffeine again is very different. So for some people who don't really have anxiety or aren't as stressed just in naturally, then they might be feel like, oh, actually I'm fine and I don't notice that. And so Again, that's when the advice is so individualized and personalized. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for that. It's just fascinating to think an innocent cup of coffee can actually send you through the roof in the morning with just your cortisol level and all that. But I also want to extend that to alcohol because we all love like a beverage, whether it's margarita, tonic, whatever. What's your take on alcohol health? Yeah, I guess like the very bottom line is that alcohol is not good for our gut. So I won't sugarcoat it. Even red wine, the polyphenols in red wine, they're still not beneficial compared to the harm that alcohol does. So alcohol is a gut irritant. So it can kind of cause that inflammation in the gut and disrupt your gut microbiome. In saying that, I definitely am a believer that everything in moderation and we're also not here to have perfect healthy guts. We're also here to live life and enjoy life. And so 
if having a drink with your friends is one way that you do that, then there's definitely room for that within a healthy balanced diet, a healthy balanced lifestyle. Yeah, awesome. I did actually want to delve a bit further into the mechanism between how your gut health sort of influences your mental health because that's something that I'm like personally quite passionate about and I know you mentioned already say for example the effect of caffeine on cortisol level but are there anything else that we need to watch out for when it comes to looking after our gut health to make sure that we're also mentally healthy as well? Yeah, great question. And it's definitely an area that I'm also super passionate about. So we definitely share that. I guess like the main thing that I really want to stress is that there isn't like one specific nutrient or food for your mental health. So it is definitely more about that whole diet approach or there are key nutrients that stand out as having a benefit for your mental health. And we can talk briefly about those. But interestingly, so diet is actually now recognized as a modifiable factor in the prevention and treatment of mental illness. So this is something that I feel like we've all kind of intuitively known. If you eat well, you feel good physically and mentally. But they've actually done, there is a study that was published in 2017 called the SMILES trial. I'm not sure if you guys would have heard about it. No. It was a randomized control trial, so like the highest level of scientific evidence, and they had 66 participants and they all had severe depression and 20% had anxiety. And there were two arms. There was like the social arm where they received social support and there was the dietary arm. And for the people in the intervention group, I'm just I'm really going to focus on the dietary arm today, but the people in the intervention group on the dietary arm, so they received nutrition kind of like counseling and dietary advice from an accredited practicing dietitian and we're encouraged to follow a dietary pattern called it was essentially like a modified mediterranean diet so they combined the australian dietary guidelines with the greek dietary guidelines and so if you look at the diet it's really high in whole grain breads and cereals fruits vegetables nuts and seeds legumes olive oil And then they also included lean protein multiple times each day, but like fish twice a week or red meat twice a week or chicken or the legumes or eggs. And then the diet was also really low in ultra processed foods. So I think we spoke a little bit about those before and how they are like pro-inflammatory. So they reduce that diversity within the gut. And yeah, so essentially with that, for the results, it showed that 32% of people came out of like went into remission from major depressive episodes. So that's pretty incredible. And the reason that's so awesome is because it's actually the first gold standard of evidence that we have to show that diet can affect mental health. And this was like irrespective of any changes in weight or physical activity. So it was like the diet alone. If you could leave us with three departing tips for your daily habits, whether it's hydration, whether it's how to structure your meal, what would those three be? Yeah, definitely one of them will be hydration. So you've kind of taken that one out of my hat. I think for a lot of us, we aren't drinking enough water and hydration is so important for our digestive health, for our cognition. If we're dehydrated, it can affect our mood, our cognitive abilities, we can feel a bit flat. And then the other would be When you're thinking about structuring a meal, just make sure that you're including half of the plate as vegetables. Mm. This is like the healthy plate model. It's really simple. You guys might have seen it before, but it's just such a great structure. So half the plate of vegetables, a quarter of our plate to be a low glycemic index or a slow release carbohydrate. So things like 
pasta and rice and sweet potato or corn or legumes and then the other quarter of the plate to be a lean protein and then also including some healthy fats so that would be like a really well balanced well structured meal and then my last tip would be enjoy food just we're here to enjoy food have taste buds for a reason it can make us feel really good so that's one of my biggest mantras as a dietitian is that it's not just about eating for nutrition it's making sure that you actually enjoy eating as well because there's no point living a life where you feel as though the joy's been sucked out of it i think we have that down pat (laughs) good Thank you again, Elise, for all of your tips today. As always, we really enjoy chatting to our guests and we hope you do as well. If you loved what Elise shared today and want to find out more about her work and her ebook, she's on Instagram at Your Gut Feel. We'll also leave her details in the show notes as well, so keep an eye out for that. If you have enjoyed episodes and find it helpful, we hope that you would leave us a comment on Instagram, share, subscribe, and also review us as well on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Till next time, it's been a pleasure to chat to you today. You've been listening to Let's Let's Take Take It It Offline.